So Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Hey everyone, it's really nice to be with you guys today. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and if you are new, just want to extend my welcome as well. Hopefully get a chance to say g'day later on. Um, and if you are new, yeah, joining, like Anna said, into a second week of something that's a little bit different to what we normally do here at City Light. Most of the year, we're working our way through a particular um, book of the Bible, but we're taking just this kind of three weeks over the holidays to do this series we're calling The Air We Breathe, which is borrowing a title and some content from a, a book by a bloke called Glenn Scribner, which is really, really worth just getting and reading if you're finding this sort of stuff interesting because it goes into a lot more depth than we're able to get into here on a Sunday. And it's exploring the way in which our worldview, and by our I don't mean like us as maybe churchgoers, but ours in terms of, I guess, Western society of which Australia is a part, is saturated with a Christian understanding of the world and a system of values that is built directly on the foundations of the Bible. And the reason we're doing this, as Anna already alluded to, is that as followers of Jesus, it can be helpful to be reminded that the core beliefs of Christianity aren't evil, nor are they neutral, but rather the Christian worldview has been and continues to be a force for good in our world. There's a lot of noise around that kind of just says something along the lines of that Christianity is redundant at best, or harmful at worst, but that's actually just simply not true. There is some nuance around that in terms of that doesn't mean that Christians have not done terrible, evil things, and we're going to be talking about some of that today. But the fundamental, I guess, beliefs or claims of Christianity are good. And the other reason we're doing this is if you were here and you were someone who wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, our hope would just, over this series, to simply show you that much of what you already do deeply believe is actually appointed to the truth of the Christian gospel. Because it is the case that there are all kinds of things that we believe to be, I guess, universal truth and obvious that we often don't really examine as to why we believe those things. Every single person has got a set of values and beliefs that aren't simply based on, I guess, the laws of nature or on physics or on something necessarily material, but on something beyond that, on, on ideas or on stories. I can give an example because you know, throughout this series we're touching on various hot-button issues and sensitive topics and I'm taking a bit of a risk by going into a topic straight out of the gate that might upset some people. And I don't want to offend people, so maybe just a show of hands so I know if I'm offending you. Is anyone here okay with eating people? Anyone? No? Any cannibals? Like, I'm not, not talking about killing people to eat them, like natural causes is fine. Eating, eating people, cannibals? All right, we're good. We're, we're safe so far which is great because the last thing I need is like a cannibal who's got it out to get me at the moment. But it's a pretty straightforward held belief um, in our society that eating people is not okay. It's like, it's so widely held and obvious you don't think about it most days or most weeks or most years. And it may be the case you've never even had to stop and think about why that is. But if you do dig for a reason, you, you quickly find that the things you're having to appeal to are not simply things like saying, well, it's unnatural. Because in the course of nature, there's over 1,500 different species that have been observed to practice cannibalism. 
And more than that, it's not even an unheard of thing in our own species. It's not that cannibalism has, has arisen like once in some obscure place somewhere, but in every continent on Earth, societies have arisen at different times in which eating people is considered normal and a part of life. So that is just something that's just kind of out there. And this, this talk's not on cannibalism. That's all we're going to be going into for that. We can explore it another day maybe. It's maybe not as pressing. But that is simply to say that it is possible to hold to a belief, first without a deep explanation of it and still feel it to be obviously true, but that also that we have these beliefs that when we do pause and think about it, we have to appeal to something that is what you might describe as supernatural. Not necessarily talking about like a spiritual force, but something that is above and beyond the physical world. We have this assumption that a person is more than meat, that there is this non-physical layer to our value system. And that gets to what we looked at last week. If you weren't here, Jez spoke to us about a really foundational idea, which is the idea that all people are equal. And not just equally worthless, but equally valuable. And Jez pointed out that's a concept that makes a lot of sense in light of the Christian teaching that all people are made in the image of God, but it's not an idea that makes a whole lot of sense without it. And so we're just going to recap that idea because it is foundational to what we're looking at today as we get into the topic of freedom. But it's the idea that there is something about a person and something about every person that gives them value and worth that is beyond what is physical. The thing that gives a person worth is not something you can extract from them on a surgical table. It's not something you can look at under a microscope. And it is unique to people amongst all, the, all of the beings on this earth. And it is common to all people. That all people are made in the image of God, who are, they are embodied souls, spiritual and eternal beings, as well as physical beings. And this is an idea that actually stands in real stark contrast to, I guess, a much newer but very widely held worldview of, some, of a form of, I guess, secular materialism, which would say that at the end of the day, humans are just animals. Different, perhaps, in ability or in like, cognitive like, intellectual capacity, but not different in essence. The way just a different arrangement of the same set of molecules that would make up an ant or a horse. And I was listening to a podcast that aired this week in which someone was just very boldly sharing this idea. It was a popular New York Times podcast where an environmental philosopher, Melanie Challenger, was speaking about her book, How to Be Animal. And she's basically explaining how humans have got it wrong by thinking of ourselves as, as categorically different from anything else in the animal kingdom. And there's a line from her book that I think sums up her point quite well, where she says this. She says, all that we do, we do as animals, but we justify it as humans. The way we've structured the world is little more than the intuition of an animal whose greatest interests lie with its own kind. But we almost never confess to this. We tell ourselves instead that we have a soul, or if we don't want to call it a soul, we say there is a person inside us that is more important than the body from which it is made. And I found it interesting, this, this is literally this Monday, I was listening to this podcast, and just to hear her talk about these views and have the interview, I'd just be completely just not bothered by it. It's just kind of, well, yeah, that's an obvious statement to make. That, that the idea of someone being a person, not just a human animal, is a delusion. It's a, it's a myth to think that we have something that you might describe as a soul. We are just animals. And as I was listening to it, uh, I was reminded of something, and I, I think maybe in my head, maybe because of, of NIDOC week this week, which was a, a claim that I heard back when I was in high school. I remember being just really offended by it at the time, 
which is, and you may have heard this claim, that prior to the referendum of 1967, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in this country were classified under the Flora and Fauna Act. Now, when you hear that statement, or if you've heard that in the past before, it is an extremely offensive thing to hear. It is kind of a shocking idea that a group of people could be classed, on, I guess on a legal level, on the same level as animals. Now, it's actually an urban myth. It's one that's actually been really... Like, I think people would have heard that before. It's not actually true. That isn't, that isn't the case. But the sad reality is that the reason that could spread is that it actually does fit with, our, with what is true about our understanding of how Aboriginal people in this country have been treated. That at times, in our history, Aboriginal people have been treated more like animals than people. And that is an offensive idea that you could treat someone like an animal. And I would argue that if that was a true thing, that you could class a group of people as animals, the reason that would be offensive isn't that that is an accurate description of one group of people, but the error is failing to group every other ethnicity in the same basket. The reason it's offensive is because we know intrinsically that you can't just treat people like animals. And that Aboriginal and Torres Strait, Strait Islander people deserve the same dignity, respect, honour, protection that comes as a birthright of being a human being, which Christians would add are made in the image of God. And I think it just revealed to me that we've got these two conflicting truth claims in our society at the moment, which is to say on one hand, we are animals, nothing more. And on the other hand, to say at the same time, to treat someone as you would an animal is up there as one of the greatest evils a person could commit. And both can't be true. And what the Christian worldview would say is that it's the second of these statements that is true. It is an evil to treat another person as an animal because, as we looked at last week in Genesis 1.27, it says at the beginning of the Bible, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's where we got to last week. Humans are equal, but not equally insignificant, but they are equally valuable in the image of God. And it's hard to overstate the importance of this idea because the moment you start saying that some people are less, less than human on some level is really the first step to all kinds of atrocities from, from Nazi Germany to Stalin's Russia to the colonial genocides of native peoples, which were justified at those times by the perpetrators with the idea that humans are not equal. But one of the greatest atrocities that has this idea at its core has been slavery in its various forms. And that's what brings us to what we're looking at today, which is the idea of freedom. The idea that, that we hold, as I'm assuming as people today, every single person here, that people have a right to freedom. That to enslave someone is to take away a fundamental human right. And that slavery as a practice is a universal evil. But like the idea of equality that we looked at last week, the idea that freedom is something that all people are entitled to is not a self-evident reality. Because the idea that everyone has a right to freedom is not an idea that has been held for most people for most of history. But for us, it just seems obvious. And so what we're going to be looking at today is why this is. I'm going to be making an argument that Christianity, and in particular the gospel of Jesus, worked not once but twice to eradicate the accepted practice of slavery in large portions of the world. 
And I think this is also helpful to look at today, even though in one sense the argument is, is one, that we are all on board with the idea of freedom, is that we can actually see a bit of a case study as to what happens when a society loses its grip on its once-held values. So slavery, which we're going to talk about today, is about as close to a human universal as can be imagined. Almost every society on Earth throughout history, beyond a very, I guess, primitive level, has in some way incorporated a practice of slavery into everyday life. And for most of time, has not been seen as an evil that needs to be righted, but a self-evident and just obvious part of life, of a functioning society. Slavery has allowed empires to grow and increase in wealth and prosperity. And the Bible, which was written over a period of hundreds of years, um, was written in contexts in which slavery was the norm. And the Bible talks about slavery from beginning to end in a way that conflicts with the surrounding culture. So a bit of an overview of that. In the Old Testament of the Bible, so that's the part of the Bible before Jesus, the Old Testament has a story of slavery at its core. The, the, the foundational story of the Israelite people is that they were enslaved by the dominant power, the Egyptians, because of their ethnicity. And they were subjugated in harsh conditions to work with no reward and no freedom for the Egyptians until God heard their cries and then intervened to liberate them. And so most of the references in the Old Testament to slavery is talking about that one particular story, this narrative of the evil of dominion and the God who identifies with the slave. But then post, I guess, the Exodus and the Israelites' liberation from slavery, the Israelites did continue to have a form of slavery in their society. Not in the same way that they had experienced. It wasn't an entire people group subjugated by another people group but more as an economic necessity and, and even a means of recovering debt. And so there are laws in the Old Testament about slavery because it is something that happened in that society. But there's some pretty unique kind of caveats to how slavery functioned in Israelite society. Firstly, and significantly, every 50 years in Israel, every slave was to be set free, which was a complete safeguard against generational slavery. But then beyond that, and I think re really significantly, the Israelites, whenever they are told to do something in regards to their slaves, they are told to remember their own history when it comes to slavery. And they are instructed by law to not be harsh, to not be unjust, or to be unkind, because they are to know that God identifies with slaves. So that's the Old Testament. And then come the New Testament, the Israelites now remaining in the Jewish nation, were a small part of the much larger Roman Empire in which the practice of slavery was common, as it had been in the Greek Empire before them, the Babylonian Empire before them, and the Assyrian Empire before them, that empires would rise and fall, but the practice of slavery was a constant. And so in the time of Jesus, slavery was there. There were slaves living in that society. But over a period of a couple of hundred years throughout the growth of Christianity, something actually changed. There was all of a sudden significant voices calling for the abolition of slavery. In 379 AD, the Bishop Gregory of Nicaea condemned the institution of slavery across the board. And over the, you know, a period of hundreds of years, as Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, and then the Roman Empire fell and Christianity spread further throughout Europe, over a period of years, Slavery was eradicated from northern Europe, from France, from Italy, from England. 
There was something about the Jesus movement that caused slavery, which had been there basically forever, to stop. And I would argue that it comes down to the gospel of grace. Core to the teaching of Jesus was that his message of salvation, that his message of a kingdom that he was inviting people to be a part of, was open to all. That the various hierarchies of worthiness that had been existing in that society were, were to be torn down. Jesus himself spent time with outcasts and outsiders, and he taught the kingdom was for all. Look at how Jesus really introduces himself in the beginning of Luke's gospel. He stands up in a synagogue and he reads these words quoting from the Old Testament and look at who he's pointing to who he identifies with. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus sees himself as someone who is coming to those who are experiencing oppression. He's the embodiment of the God who had freed a whole nation from slavery. And so it's no wonder that Jesus himself and his message was attractive to those on, I guess, the lower rungs of society. Because he was happy to call his brothers and sisters people of all types, whether they were tax collectors or lepers or prostitutes or successful businessmen or salt-of-the-earth fishermen. Jesus was able to say, you're my brother, you're my sister. And as the church grew, that fundamental teaching shaped it to be a radically inclusive institution. The church believed that the salvation that, that Jesus offered came through his blood being shed for sinners. And sinners was a category that all people could identify with. There is not a person that is beyond the need of Jesus' saving grace, and no one is beyond the reach of it either. And so the, the main way then that the church saw each other and spoke to each other and related to each other was that of brothers and sisters, co-heirs of God's mercy. And you see this in, in Galatians 3, which Anna read to us before. Just look at it again. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The direct application of understanding what has happened in the gospel and being saved and brought into Jesus' kingdom is to see that all of the divides, depending on how visible they are, whatever, in the light of the gospel, they are nothing. There is no fundamental difference in value or worth or or the purchasing power of Jesus' blood for someone who is free or someone who is a slave. And you were to to view the people that you relate with within this context of the church as brothers and sisters. And as the church grew and people, more and more people joined this movement to the point it became a majority, obviously it becomes very uncomfortable to maintain the practice of slavery when you're meant to be seeing your slave as your brother or your sister. And so slavery was undermined from the inside out. And as Christendom spread, slavery faded away until in the Dark Ages, it was virtually non-existent as a practice, which is like a big thumbs up for the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages gets a a bad rap for being dark, I guess, I don't know, but there was a window of time in which slavery was pretty much no more. 
But when you think of slavery, it's not ancient kind of Roman slavery that comes to mind typically, is it? The, the, the more fresh in our mind imagery of slavery is far more recent. It's what happened in the 1600s and beyond because in the 1600s, slavery came back. And it didn't just come back in some small way, did it? It came back in a huge way. The transatlantic slave trade saw between 10 and 12 million Africans transported against their will in harsh conditions to the Americas, 1.8 million of whom died from the horrible conditions on the boats on which they were transported. It is clearly the, the worst occurrence of institutional slavery that the world has ever seen. And here's the problem with that. Well, there's many problems with that, but here's the uncomfortable reality for the church in that, is that the slave trade was carried out almost exclusively by nations that you would describe in some way, shape, or form as Christian. That the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, the English were all predominantly church-going nations who claimed to have a morality built on the teachings of the Bible. Which raises the very valid question, how on earth is that possible? Or even maybe a step beyond that, if this kind of thing could kick off in a, in a Christian empire, there must be something pretty off or pretty wrong foundationally about the Christian message. How did a society that was meant to be built on the Bible allow this atrocity to happen? And it's a good question. It's a fair question. Because the conditions that brought about the rise of the slave trade, I mean, they, they are varied and they are complicated. You can go and spend some time trying to read the various arguments that people put forward for why this was an okay thing to do. And to be fair, there were people who tried to justify it from a Christian perspective. They put forward arguments that were, at least with hindsight, extremely paper-thin and weak, um, things like, you know, I, I guess the most common one was simply slavery happened in the Bible, so God must be okay with it. Maybe even more toxic than that, there were those, those who said that taking Africans to the colonies was probably the most helpful way to help them convert to Christianity, which again, paper thin, horrible argument, but it was one that people claiming to be Christians certainly made. But these actually weren't the main arguments for Christianity, as abhorrent as those arguments are. The main arguments for Christianity were a whole bunch of new ideas that were either rediscovered or, I guess, uh, created afresh throughout the Enlightenment period. A big part of the Enlightenment was the rediscovery of Greek thought, the, the great Greek literature. And people became very fond in justifying the slave trade of quoting people like Aristotle, who said, it is clear that some men are slaves by nature and others are free by nature. The, the hierarchical view of people that some are better, than, better or, or, than others or not equal, that justified slavery in the years before Jesus were again used to justify it in the 1600s and 1700s. Beyond that, through the advancement of intellectual thought and science, the idea really grew that there was a fundamental difference between civilized people and uncivilized people. This is not a, a, a biblical 
lens to, to, to differentiate people. But it was a very new one to say that there was civilized societies that were more advanced and who had every right as civilized societies to exploit and take advantage of those who, hadn't, who were differently structured. More than that, racism grew in a, in a, in a new way over that period. Racism had obviously always been the case in terms of people disliking or fearing those who were different than them. But with the rise of the theory of evolution, there's a new lens you could do that, which would be to say that some people are more evolved than other people. That there were some that, that in a sense, were being left behind. And to read some of the justifications that people mounted based on the theory of evolution for the enslaving of dark-skinned people are just too intense to even repeat. There's these horrible thoughts and these horrible arguments. But in, in looking into it this week, I think I, I, I've certainly became convinced that the reason above all that the slave trade grew was actually not because of any intellectual, rational or religious, religious argument at all, but it was something actually deeper than that and something more universal. It was simple greed. See, the Christian worldview that had been inherited throughout Europe at the, at the time of the rise of the slave trade wasn't actually unclear in its view towards slavery. Queen Elizabeth I expressed her concern about slavery to John Hawkins, who was the very first British slave trader. Before his first maiden voyage of, of transporting slaves across the Atlantic, she said and warned him that no Africans should be carried off without their free consent and declared that it would be detestable and call down the vengeance of heaven upon the undertakers. She had an element of clarity, Queen Elizabeth I, as to, as to the inherent evil of slavery. And yet, within a few years, she was funding and supporting slave missions. And what happened in that time? It wasn't that she was convinced through argument. It's simply that John Hawkins offered to give her a set portion of the prophets. The desires of the heart and the love of money, twisted and evil as they were, were more powerful than any argument that could be made for or against. That the money to be made on the trade of human lives and the free labor that could be exploited and the comfort that could come with that was so great that people could use any argument to justify the greatest evil that could be committed. It's a case of what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And so, nations of churchgoers silenced the voice of God, quieted down the idea that all people are made in the image of God, that there is a common brotherhood of man because of the gospel which is open to all. And their worldview was not driven by, their, by the teachings of Jesus, but rather their wallets. And I think just that is a warning, isn't it, about how deceptive the heart can be, that we can actually find a way to justify what we want even if it is so clearly against the will of God. So slavery arose and it came back, but it did not last. It was actually, once again, the gospel, as it was rediscovered and taught and proclaimed, that ended it. The fact that the slave trade is not continuing today is directly because of the influence of the gospel and how that, that grew to influence the thinking of the time. They rediscovered the idea that God's grace is a leveler and a unifier. The gospel continued to, to work and, 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 and capture people's 
hearts and understanding, even, even as the slave trade boomed. And it did this in a myriad of ways. And firstly, and perhaps most remarkably, this actually happened in the slaves themselves. Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a contemporary author, writes that the existence of the black church is, is perhaps America's greatest miracle. And the idea from that is that African-American slaves found solace in the very gospel that their enslaving masters were playing lip service to. The embrace of the gospel by African-American slaves points actually to the, how ludicrous it is that the that the slaves could attempt to justify what they were doing based on the Bible. Because when slaves read the Bible or heard the stories that it contained, it was obviously and undeniably clear to them that it was not with the slaves that God stood, but with the enslaved. The parallels to the plight of the, Egypt, of the Israelites in Egypt was uncanny. The idea of God as the Redeemer resonated, the, the God in the heavens who, who could hear the cries of the slaves and, and, and meet that with compassion was something they could hold on to. More than that, the hope of Jesus who stands with the oppressed and promises liberation. More than that, a worldview that says you have dignity regardless of your circumstances. The slaves through the gospel were able to see and, and find justification for what they knew to be true, that they were worth something. They didn't have to wait for their value and freedom to be conferred upon them by anyone else, but to know that intrinsically they have the right as people, as children of God, to freedom and to worth, which empowered them with confidence to fight for their freedom, knowing it to be their God-given right. But the gospel also managed to start breaking through on the side of the perpetrators. At times, in particular, people giving them a crystal clear awareness of the sin and guilt that they were committing. Most famously, perhaps John Newton, who, who wrote the song that we sing, Amazing Grace, a slave trader turned pastor who realized the depths of his depravity and evil when he encountered the gospel. And ultimately, in terms of those who, who fought to change the laws around slavery and, and abolish it, it was a group of Christians that did that. Not Christians by like name, like everyone was in the day, but, but genuine, Bible-loving, Jesus-worshipping, born-again, spirit-filled Christians fought ferociously and at great cost to themselves for the abolition of the slave trade. William Wilberforce and, and those of the Clapham sect were perhaps the greatest social reformers whom have ever lived. And they took the fight up against slavery because of their deep convictions of the Bible. But society had gone so, 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 so wrong in ignoring what is obvious in the pages of Scripture that all people are made in the image of God, that slavery is an evil, and that the way we are to view each other in light of the gospel of Jesus is as brothers and sisters. It was not secular enlightenment philosophy that caused them to take up this fight. It was the gospel that no one made in God's image should suffer the horrors that the slaves suffered. But again, it wasn't just a small group of people with influence that fought to do it. The reason that the slave trade eventually was broken down and ultimately that slaves across the Americas were emancipated was that the idea, again, of this, this Galatians 3 brotherhood of the gospel it was able to become dominant again. And it's a distinctly Christian understanding. Supporters of the abolition movement would carry a, a, like a medallion that had the image of a slave in shackles with the text, Am I not a man and a brother? 
That is a Christian idea. At Christmas, the church would gather and sing carols, as we do today. They would sing songs like, O Holy Night. O Holy Night, which we still sing now, was transcribed into English in 1855 and was popular in America in those years, 10 years before Abraham Lincoln passed the abolition of slavery. And so the church was singing these lines. Back when slavery was still a, a reality in America, the church would sing, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slaves our brother, and in his name all oppression shall, shall cease. We sing that as like a, either thinking about some abstract spiritual reality or maybe like with a looking back into the past of what God has done. But when this song was first sung, it was a subversive song, speaking of something political and live and, and present in their culture. It was singing of the conviction of, of the Christmas message that Jesus entering in the world was good news for slaves and that freedom was possible. And eventually the gospel worldview won out. And it continued to win out not just in the abolition of slavery, but in the continuing battle for civil rights. Martin Luther King Jr., who like everyone knows is you know, the leader of the, the civil rights movement, a hundred years after the abolition of slavery in America, when obviously there's still so much racial injustice happening, he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And the part of the speech we all remember is just that bit, I Have a Dream. But the content of what he said, it was drawing specifically on his clear Christian worldview and appealing to a sense that people knew that to be true in that nation. He said things like this in that speech. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all God's children. That's what he appealed to as the justification for the civil rights movement. And he ended his speech. These are the very last lines that he spoke on that day. When he, when he called on the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we are free at last. 2,000 years after Jesus lived, died and rose again, his teaching of an inclusive kingdom, a grace available to all, has continued to win out. It is the gospel that gives the grounds for the hope of freedom. So if, as people of this gospel, how should we respond? I think the most obvious thing to say firstly is that while slavery is illegal almost everywhere, it has not been eradicated. International Justice Mission, which is an organization dedicated to the, um, to, the, to the freeing of slaves and the intervening uh, to rescue people from modern-day slavery, has, has estimated that 50 million people are in slavery today, a quarter of which are children, either in forced labor, trapped by debt or deception or threats, or as victims of sex trafficking. And as Christians, we hold to a worldview that would tell us that each of these 50 million people is a person made in the image of God. A person whom Jesus would welcome with open arms as a brother or sister. As a person that he loved enough to die for. 
And yet it's easy to blind ourselves to 50 million people. But the hard truth is that we might actually be beneficiaries of this slavery without even knowing it. Particularly in the fashion industry. Either directly in like garment manufacturing or further up the supply chain. That is where a lot of modern day slaves of, of, of forced labor are working. And we as a people should be engaged in this issue through prayer and through generosity and just through knowing what is going on. And so, because I know this series is very kind of up here, lofty, I want to just try to leave you with something practical you can do. Um, and I think this would be the first step, is that Baptist World Aid puts out every year an annual ethical fashion guide, which specifically addresses hundreds of brands that are available in Australia and assesses them based on how their workers are treated where the materials are sourced from and whether they can demonstrate that their workers are paid a, a living wage and that there is no slavery happening in their supply chain. And a 20-minute read through that PDF, which you can get by going to baptistworldaid.com.au or Googling that at least and finding it, is the realisation that just because something is sold in Australia doesn't mean that someone has done the work to actually research and find out what is, where that has come from. That a bit of research might actually change your shopping habits and, and face you with the uncomfortable reality that there are plenty of brands available in Australia that do not pay workers a living wage or engage somewhere in the supply chain in modern-day slavery. And while you're at it, to maybe take a look at International Justice Mission's website, which can get you an understanding of what is happening today with other forms of slavery, like sex trafficking, and to be educated and informed about ways to engage with that, to be prayerful, to... to to take action where possible, to be generous and to direct the funds you have to, to those who, who can actually help on the ground. So that's a practical way to respond to this. But I think the second way to respond to this, and just to encourage you, is to treasure the gospel message. Because you will hear that the gospel message is unnecessary, that it's old, that it is dead, that it is useless, that it is even harmful. But we know that it's not. It's the means of salvation. It is the means of someone seeing in the blood of Jesus the love that God has for them, the dignity that that gives them, the knowledge that they are seen by their Creator and valued deeply. And it is the message that when people take hold of that reality, apply it to themselves and apply it to those around them, will cause us to love to know the reality that any marginalized group can be seen as a brother or a sister, to remember the fact that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the world-altering reality of the gospel that you entered this world and did not buy in to the accepted ideas that some people are worth more than others, that some are maybe by their nature slaves or less valuable, that it is okay to exploit others for wealth, and you turned all of that on its head by, by calling us into your kingdom, by not allowing us in or out based on our gender or our race or our social standing, but simply by the nature of the fact that we are sinners and in need of grace, you offered that grace freely. That you, the doctor, came for the sick and not the healthy. 
And so we just pray that we would have eyes to see every single person that we encounter through that lens. That where we are able, we are able to make decisions that do not promote or support evil things and slavery that's happening in the world today. And that we would just be defenders of the gospel. We would not be ashamed to speak it. We wouldn't hide it, pretend that we don't believe it. We would speak it boldly, knowing that this is a message that brings life, but also that we would embody it. That like you, we would go to those who are hurting, who are broken, who are in need, and that we would love them as a brother and as a sister. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.